Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at NewBalance.com. What's up, guys? I'm Josh Pate. It's time for the Late Kick Show Owners Association. The lottery has been held. The winning participants have been selected. We're going to waste no time. We're diving right in. Thanks so much for joining. Hope you enjoy. All right, we're going to go over to Jared. He has a question about an offensive revolution in college football. Yeah, hey, Josh. So looking past at the last season, I think we saw probably some of the most explosive football. Um, out of Bama, out of Ohio State, Clemson, I mean, you name it, top six, seven teams looked stellar, uh, offensive revolutions in full effect. So there has to be an answer, right? There has to be a subsequent defensive revolution to answer this cause. Otherwise, we might be into a lopsided game. You know, looking back at BCS era, it was evident that it was a defensively dominated game and we had a national championship game that was 21 to nothing. And now it's 55 to 24. Uh, how does this balance? Uh, well, it doesn't in terms of that. Like if you look in, I was talking to someone last night, actually, on the coaching side, and everyone wants to throw the word cyclical out there, especially when I say everyone who coaches defense, they want to throw the word cyclical out there. And it's kind of like a wing and a prayer. They're kind of hoping that we return to a sense of normalcy as they would define it. But really, some of the sharper, sharper defensive minds, they've totally gotten away from ever thinking that we're going back to, you know, 23-17 being the norm or, or much less like 17-10 to 10 being the norm. What they're all focused on is like havoc rate and different staffs have different ways of defining that. It's like quarterback pressures plus hurries plus forced fumbles. It's like a little equation. Like I have one for our purposes. I don't necessarily do it the same way that like Texas Tech does it, but they're focused on that. They're focused on situational excellence, which largely means red zone. And then also, like, they're focused on being multiple. So it used to be that you wanted a scheme and you wanted to be a defensive coordinator. And everyone talked about that guy's scheme. Well, Brent Venables has kind of done a really good job of sort of turning that on its ear. And he's famous for throwing out a different defense every week. Now, it largely falls under the structure of what he wants to run. But what he figured out how to do and what a lot of other people are being forced to figure out how to do is force an offense to beat your athletes instead of beat your system because your system's going to get figured out pretty quick all the rules are tilted in the offense's favor so even the best like Nick Saban in Alabama used to be the best Florida hung 48 on them or something like that Ole Miss hung nearly 50 on them so yeah like you said those days are gone but then also like you can win a championship if you're situationally good havoc rates good and you are multiple. Multiplicity is really what they want. They want guys who can be multiple, scheme multiple, show different things week to week. Like that's, I guess you asked, like, what is the logical next step? Defensively, that's the next step for me. Like, here's my question though. So out of the people in the room right now, for a long time when we had those quote unquote boring defensive games, I, I used to hear all the time on TV, it's boring. Most people don't want to see it. So like my question, because I was the opposite of most of those folks, I didn't care. I, I didn't mind defense at all. 
How many of you, show of hands, would rather watch a game that's 55-48 than a game that is, let's say, 23-16, very competitive, high-level ball being played both sides? Yeah, that's what I thought. So here's what the reality was the whole time. I don't ever think that it was all that unpopular because if I look at television numbers, if I look at viewership metrics, if it was really boring to everyone, people would have tuned out. People weren't tuning out. Some of those games got massive TV numbers, even relative to what today's game gets, and in some cases better than what some of today's game gets. I know it's not apples to apples, but I think once America got a taste of what used to be just Big 12 football being college football in general, like... I knew there was going to come a time where the public wanted that pendulum to swing at least a little bit more back towards the middle. But like Jared, you just asked, and I don't think anyone has an answer now as to how do you make that pendulum come back from a defensive coordinator standpoint? I think it's just, you roll with the changes and then you evolve and you morph however you need to, to survive. It's not just thrive. It's just like survive now. Nice. Okay. Next we'll go to Jace. Uh, he's got a question about Mario Cristobal and Oregon. Yeah. Uh, hey, Josh. I know you've talked your fair share about Mario Cristobal and my ducks. And just recently, I've noticed that Mario Cristobal, um, instead of just staying in Southern Cal, Washington, Arizona, the typical like West pipelines, early on in this 2022 class, he's tapped into Alabama and Texas. And so I just wanted to know on a broader scale, not just Oregon, how much of recruiting is really finding the best players for your team that'll fit your team? And how much of it is it like selecting players from certain pipelines that you really want to tap into for the future? So if you know a guy is coming up uh, like one year behind a friend that you want to recruit, how much is it selecting just the best players versus finding pipelines to get into for the future? He, if he were sitting right now, he would say both. He would say they're interchangeable. I think it has to be at Oregon. You don't have to be that way if you're the University of Georgia or Florida or something like that. But if you're at Oregon, you don't have the option to just stay in state. I mean, unless you want to get run over every year. So they have a national approach. He hired a national staff. Like if you'll notice, he didn't hire a whole bunch of guys who are from the Pacific Northwest or even just the West Coast. He's got flavor from all over the country. He himself has coached, played at Miami, coached Alabama, FIU. Like he's been in a number of places too. But what they do that's really well or really good is they don't make those geographical fences a limitation for them. Like if you look at their last class, it's the total inverse of what North Carolina did. You rarely compare those two programs. But if you look at what North Carolina did, Mac Brown walked in the door a couple of years ago around the same time Cristobal got the job at Oregon. And he looked around and said, oh, we got a whole bunch of players in this class in this state. So I'm not going to have to leave North Carolina. Cristobal looked around and said, we got like one or two. So for the vast majority of the kids we land, we're not going to be able to stay at home. And so he did not take the approach, nor could he, that a lot of his peers do in the South and even the Midwest. And so he put together a national staff. Now, I think that when you're talking about hotbeds, that is like East Texas is one, Florida is one, California is one. That is something that you focus on. But I think what Cristobal and his staff have done is they've, they've known since the day they walked in the door They've got a unique advantage in that O and the brand that comes behind that, that gets them in the door pretty much anywhere in the country. So for that specific reason, they have an advantage that maybe even the University of Washington or Oregon State wouldn't have. Same part of the country, but they don't have that. And so I think that that, that Nike push and that, that Oregon logo and everything that comes with that branding, you can walk into Omaha, Nebraska. You can walk into Montgomery, Alabama. You could walk into Virginia Beach, Virginia. 
And it, when you show up and you've got that on the chest, it's what the coaches always talk about. Which logo do I have on my chest when I walk in the school? When you got the O on your chest, it doesn't matter if a kid could not physically point out the state of Oregon on a map. They know what the O means as it relates to college football. And so, like, I, everybody I talk to feels that same way. They know the Oregon logo. So they don't have to worry so much about those hotbeds as maybe another program would. That's been my observation. Like, how many... What do you guys think of when you see the Oregon logo? If you just did this memory framework thing, like what's the first thing that pops in your mind? Don't even pretend you're 18 years old. Just be yourself. Jerseys. That's it. That's it. And like all that stuff matters. So now pretend you are 17 years old. Like how many of you just said something that wouldn't matter to a 17 year old version of yourself, especially if you could ball out, like you could play at a very, very high level. So I don't think they have to worry about it all that much, to be honest with you. I think that they got a tireless staff, a tireless recruiting staff. Uh, they've got a good product to sell. They are on the come, so everyone sees that. And then they got all of what we just said in the background that's kind of fueling that engine, so to speak. All right, good stuff. We're going to head on over to Josh H. He's got a pretty good hypothetical question for you. Would you go ahead, Josh. Yes, this is kind of a what if. If you could bring any player back in their prime to play this year, but they had to go to the school that they originally played with, who would you bring back? And how do you think it would impact the sport or the year, I should say? We sound so similar when we talk, you and I. <laughs> I would go, um, so you're talking about this year, right? I get to bring back a former player. put A him former in the player program. from any year. So, like, I was thinking about it through. And at first I thought Cam Newton, because I just liked watching him play. But I don't think Auburn are there yet. So it wouldn't really impact the wider sport as much. Yeah. So then I went to Vince Young, because I think if you threw Vince Young into Texas, I think suddenly the Big 12 become really interesting. Yeah, I could do Colt McCoy there too. I'll tell you, so I'll stay in Texas. If I were to bring Manziel back to A&M, if I were to have that kind of quarterback at A&M with now the stability in terms of coaching staff they have in place and the roster being overall probably better than it was back then, maybe not position by position. I'd love to have those receivers they had back then. <laughs> but by and large, I think the overall roster is in a better spot certainly defensively it is. So if I could put Johnny Manziel at A&M this year, I would love that. I would love their chances to actually, well, they beat Alabama that year. So I would love their chances to challenge Alabama. Also, just because I remember so vividly thinking this back then, I'd love to take A.J. Green and put him back at Georgia this year and have like the commitment to um, a more prolific offensive approach you just lost George Pickens at Georgia. And so everyone's got questions about the wide receiver position. Well, if I could take the best receiver I've seen them have, and I could drop him here into 2021, like that'd be pretty interesting to watch too. That's a good question though. Cause I, I guarantee when I drive home tonight, I'll think of all kinds of players. I could say, well, like Chase Daniel, if I could put him at Missouri, I don't know what Missouri would do this year. Well, I also thought when you just said the AJ Green thing and how they're different, I automatically went Megatron. Oh With wow, George Tech that was yeah yeah that would be back then. that would be who who has an answer for this in here? <laughs> you get to take one guy from any program, you get to drop him into this year at the program he played at. It's going to change the sport this year. Which one is it? Give me back Justin Fields at Ohio State. <laughs> how about how about I give you Fields at Georgia? What what would you think about that? <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> but they'd be really good. They'd be really really good. I was trying to think about a Michigan, if I would do something for Michigan. I don't think one player would turn around Michigan this year, though. Tom Brady? I don't – yeah, I mean, 
he's got to have weapons around him. I know Josh Gaddis says he's got them. I don't know if you guys heard me talk about that the other day, man. He's he claims he's got the speed now. He claims he's got all all the neck up stuff. So uh, if he does, then maybe we could throw Brady back in there. Maybe maybe all of a sudden there there goes Michigan on the way to the college football playoff. But that's a good question, man. Yeah. So give me Johnny Manziel officially. And then also let me reserve the right to change my pick like six hours from now after we're done with this. All right. Next, we're going to go over to Nick. Uh, He also had a really good hypothetical question. Go ahead, Nick. Uh, so I know we talk about uh, who who's the next tier two team, but uh, my question is kind of the opposite of that: is who's the next tier one or tier two team to fall out or bottom out like that? Because uh, I think if you told a Florida State fan twenty years ago, ten years ago, that they'd be getting skull dragged by Clemson right about now, their their jaw would hit the floor. And so I was kind of wondering who who at the top of their game right now would be that from a time traveler from 2030, 2040. Oh, well, I really hesitate to give the first answer that came to mind because I was scrolling through the comments earlier today and got accused of being a Clemson hater. I can't pronounce Clemson. I put a Z in there. So they don't like that. So they think I hate Clemson. Do we have any Clemson fans in here? No, I think we got some later. So we'll keep that between us, even though this is going to go out on the YouTube channel. But my answer would probably be Clemson only because before the current head coach who's there right now was there, they had never been nationally elite at any point in the program's history, or at least in our lifetimes, they had never been that. And several years before that. So I'm not saying it's going to happen, but according to the context of your question, I'm looking around and I'm saying, what's more likely that uh, Ohio state or Alabama fall off, even though they had established tradition before their current coaches got there, it had been a little while for Bama as opposed to Ohio state, but they had a track record. They had won championships with multiple coaches before. Clemson hadn't done that. So what's more likely? One of those programs falls off, even though they still got all the advantages they currently have. Or we find out that Clemson was a product of just how great Dabo Swinney ended up being. Like, I don't know if that ends up happening. Uh, Maybe when he leaves there, it's just like a machine. And they are a modern day equivalent of the other two programs. The other one, I'll tell you what. So the other one that you could go with is Notre Dame. So I think Brian Kelly's underrated. Brian Kelly is called overrated. And I've never agreed with it, only because no one ever says Brian Kelly is one of the three or four best in the country. If they were to say that, maybe that's overrated. But I think Notre Dame certainly has got one of the top six or seven coaches in the country right now. I don't think everyone realizes that. And I don't think everyone realizes how good a job he does at Notre Dame. And so if I were to take him away from there right now and they go and get whoever they would get to replace him, I'm not so sure the answer is not Notre Dame because Notre Dame is a solid tier two team right now. They've been a playoff team a couple of times. They're, they're right on the precipice every year. I think they've got like back-to-back-to-back double-digit win seasons or something like that before this last year. I, I think they had it this last year too. So they're there every year. Like they're squarely in tier two. They're not tier one, but they're squarely in tier two every year. I'd go Notre Dame or Clemson. I'm really interested because we got some time here. Like where, first off, where would you go? And then the rest of the room, like where would you go on this? I personally, Clemson was my first first thought as an Alabama fan, completely unbiased. But um, I was going to go with Clemson cause just just because of the the inability of of them, even with Dabo, to kind of like you've said before, uh, like do it themselves. Like they haven't they haven't won a championship where they haven't been doubted and stuff like that. And we also have to see what they are without a proven quarterback. Like. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, Deshaun Watson are, were obviously great, and we have to see how, 
I'm not a DJ. I'm not going to try and pronounce his last name. Um, see how he turns out. He could be a fantastic quarterback, but they, they, I, I, they would be my guess for the next top tier team to fall out. How many people's answer would be Clemson? Clemson. Right, so a couple. So, so a better option. Yes. Okay. So then aside from Clemson, what other options do we have? Honestly, and I think a few people in here won't like it, Bama. Just because following Nick Saban is not going to be easy. And they've had success in the past, but they went down after losing a big coach. And I think that could happen again. But I also think it's probably none of them. Because I don't think Florida State were at the level of Clemson, Alabama, for as long is claims in Alabama and Ohio State have now been elite. So I don't see that drop-off happening as much as it did for Florida State. They had a couple of years up and then went back down and then a couple of years up. What could bite Alabama if that were to happen? So let's say Saban retires two years from now. Um, what could hurt them is the Texas effect. So when Saban walked in there, there were a lot of folks who didn't have any business having a say-so in that program that had a say-so. And he got them out. It was basically like a chef, an alpha chef walking into the kitchen and just beating on a pan and you got everyone out of the kitchen. Well, those people didn't leave earth. They're still there. They're still kind of around and they're just, you know, it's like you throw them out the window and they're in the parking lot doing pushups. So then once you leave the building, maybe they just run right back up the stairs and maybe you get a guy in there after Saban who doesn't have the gravitas to kind of say, this is my program, do it my way or get out. And then all of a sudden you get like that Texas effect of having 40 different people touching the program in some shape, form, or fashion. And even though you got immaculate facilities and all the money in the world and all the prestige and the logo and branding is national, you can't get out of your own way. That's the way I would see Alabama. If they were the answer to that, I guess that's kind of working off what you said. That's the way I'd see that going. I see Florida falling off. It, well, I mean, I don't say that they're like way up there right now, but they're a really good team and I could see them falling off a little bit. Um, especially with like the complacency you see out of their coach right now and kind of how you feel about that team right now. So how many people just show your hand, how many people, what tier do you guys think Florida's program is in right now? A whole bunch of twos and some threes. So like, I would say, I would say lower tier two. I would agree with that. Just kind of, I don't want to gauge the room because sometimes I'm off on what other people think about that. Going to second Josh to Josh connection tonight. Josh Vaughn has a question about NIL. So for me, I feel like name, image, and likeness is the next huge change that will impact college football. But I, I can't seem to wrap my mind around it. I don't, I don't know how to look out five or ten years into the future and project like what is the real impact to this. Um, you know how much. How much NLI money are we talking about for the 2027 number one QB recruit in the country? Uh, does this sort of thing put a larger gap between the haves and the have-nots in the sport? Anyway. Yeah, it does. It does. But you may have some different haves as a result of that new landscape. So basically what you're going to be running is you're going to be running a football program and a marketing firm. That's the best way to look at it. It may repulse some people, but that's just going to be the way it is. Florida State, I've been talking about this a lot the past couple of days. I'll probably talk about it on tomorrow night's show. Florida State gets it. Because what Florida State just did, and they're not going to be the only ones. I've talked with some ADs behind the scenes. As soon as I started talking about Florida State, who said, hey, we got some stuff coming too. So just watch and see. But right now, Florida State's been at the forefront. They understood IP, intellectual property. It's, a, it's the biggest deal in content creation in, in my world. Like this little logo back here. 
it's great, but I don't own it right now. I don't own anything that we produce out of here. CBS does, because that is my employee. CBS Sports signs my checks. If I play for Florida State, what they have developed as part of their NIL package that they debuted this past week with 100 recruits unofficially on campus was they are creating their own in-house digital content library. And so anything you're doing playing for Florida State, like if I'm a safety and I'm playing for Florida State, the photos and videos that exist of me, I immediately can walk off the field log in through their digital app in my account on their app. And I have access to all that. I own it. And so I own my own IP, my own intellectual property, which is a fascinating new development because I do not own Florida state. Like I am there on their dime. They are paying me to come there in, uh, in the form of scholarship, but then they're also giving me my IP, which is just groundbreaking. And so what that lets me do is if I got, let's say I've got 500,000 followers on Instagram, another quarter million over on TikTok, I can use that content because I own it and I can use it to market myself through a thousand different methods. That's what a marketing firm normally does for you. That's what a university that has its ducks in a row, at least, is going to do for you. And then it's just going to be, there's going to be about a five-year period of this ultra creative, wild west sort of free-for-all mentality. And then about 10 programs are going to streamline the process. They'll figure it out. Everyone else will follow them. And then you'll have a pretty, I would say, congruent modus operandi. And then it'll fall in line with whose budget's the biggest, which is what recruiting is right now. But it'll be a little while where you may see a program like Arizona State or Utah or like Akron, I don't know, you may see someone who they just have cutting edge folks in their marketing and social departments and digital media, and they get it. And they're all of a sudden setting the pace, even when it comes to programs with budgets four times their size. But eventually, as you just said, yes, the haves will set the pace because they will either come up with the best ideas, hire the people who have the best ideas, or copy the best ideas, and then invest to make the ideas better. And that'll be the lay of the land. All right. Next is Hunter. He's got a question about system quarterbacks. Yeah. Hey, Josh. So my question was, we've seen over the past couple years, a bunch of QBs that performed above the expectations that were set out for them in recruiting or evaluation. I'm thinking Joe Burrow, Kyle Trask, Mac Jones, those guys. And a lot of the complaints that I hear about those people, when you say, Hey, isn't Kyle Trask great? Isn't Joe Burrow great? Is you hear them go, yeah, well, not really. Joe Brady's really great. Or Steve Sarkeesian's really great. Or Dan Mullen's scheme is really great. And to me, that never held that argument never held much water because the scheme is built around the players you have. So you, if you want to talk about that. Well, I'm listening to it a lot right now from the mock community because the draft's coming up. And so if you want to knock a guy, it's like you develop your opinion on something and then find as much confirmation bias as you can and just regurgitate it until someone finally listens. So I'm hearing a lot of that right now. So-and-so is a system so-and-so. System quarterback is normally what you hear. But here's my follow-up. How many teams in the NFL don't run a system? And the answer is none. 32 out of 32 run a system. And so it may be, let's say you're Kyle Trask. It may be that your skill set fits in the kind of system that 13 out of 32 NFL teams run. Well, at that point, two things can be true. Number one, you can be a system quarterback. And number two, you can be a perfect fit for almost half the league. And so I look at it and I say, you speak so, not you, but in general, when people use that term, they speak so pejoratively. 
it's such a negative connotation. You're a system this, a system that. And I'm asking, how many teams aren't running a system? Now, you could be a transcendently great player, and that kind of player has the skill set that could fit into any system. Not every player is created like that. Most aren't. So most have to be system guys. The reality is there are eight system guys for every one cross-system guy or transcendent-type guy who would fit anywhere. And you find that out every year because you have some teams that just draft based on best available, and then you have teams that draft based on their system. Then the best organizations can get players in there and then modify their system to those players. Um, Those are few and far between, though. All right, we're going to head over to Lewis. He's got a question about Deion Sanders and Jackson State. Hey, Josh. Um, I was looking at the recruiting numbers for Jackson State last year. And they pulled in, you know, more four-star prospects than 35 power five schools. And, you know, with uh, Ohio State's Eddie George going to Tennessee State, what would be the impact or what could be the impact if that kind of recruiting trend keeps going over the next few years or if more of these NFL stars um, take over at the FCS level? Yeah, so this is really interesting. had a long conversation about this today. What I think is going to happen is a few uh, FCS programs or historically black colleges and universities are going to carve out a niche to where they appeal to guys who otherwise would be bona fide D1 guys, bona fide power five level FBS guys. You just mentioned Dion. Like I was, I was at this, I think we were in the studio. So I was at that desk on signing day. And I remember Like we blocked off out of our eight hour show. We blocked off like 30 minutes to talk about Jackson state. We never would have done that before. Now it's, it's no coincidence. It's Deion Sanders school that we did it for, but that's the whole point. Like he understands marketing. So also that's where the NIO thing comes in again. Eddie George, you just mentioned came to Tennessee state. Eddie George has got a really interesting background. Like the guy has a financial background. Of course he played for the Titans played at Ohio state, but he's a guy who could walk in the living room and say, you could go there, 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 or there. Or you could come here. And I'm, I'm still, we, we've sent plenty of guys to the league from Tennessee State. It's in a big city, a lot of opportunities. We've got NIL figured out. And then you present your pitch to them. And it's just, you find, it's like an interstate. And if you're, if you're a gas station and you're trying to, you know, get as many people to come off on your exit as possible, you got to have your sign out there. And most of them are still going to pass by, but you just got to get enough of them to hit that exit ramp. And you don't have to get a hundred of them per year. You just got to get like 20 to 25 per year. And I think someone's going to strike gold. Maybe it's them. Maybe it's Tennessee State. Maybe it's Jackson State. Maybe we haven't seen the last of these unique hires. Maybe Sanders and and Eddie George, maybe that's just the beginning of sort of a wave there. All right. Alejandro's got a question about college football tiers. Hey, Josh. So we often tier college football programs based on their abilities to consistently compete for national titles year in and year out. But what about tiering individual college football fandom, you know, talking from least knowledgeable to just absolute hardcore follower of the sport consumes their life, probably needs to take a step back and really think (laughs) about what's going on. I don't want those people taking a step back, man. Those people make our show. That's great. Um, In the radio world, we call those P1 listeners. So the P1 listener is the kind of person who, if he got in a wreck 13 minutes before the show went on the air, he would delay the ambulance so he could listen to your show. Those are not the majority, but they are the most valuable group of people that you have in your audience, the P1 listener. Um, Then you go down the list like P2, P3. I would say 
most, like when I do the mood tracker, I take off the P1 because the P1 opinion will not be the majority opinion for the fan base. And so I would say you got 10% uh, on either side that are P1 or they're just die hard. They eat, sleep and breathe it. And I certainly never talk negatively about those folks, but then you've got like a middle 80% out of that 80%. I would say about 50% out of that 80% is P2 or informed casual, as I would call it. And then you got about a chunk of 30% that they're there on Saturday, Sunday through Friday. Maybe they check in a couple of times on their phone, but by and large, they got to wake up Saturday morning, check the schedule and see who's playing. That's how I think that divides up. All right. Last but not least, we've got the chef, Benny Hanna. He wants to know what made you fall in love with college football. Right. So my dad taught me two things. Number two, love Texas A&M. Number one, love when Texas loses. So in 2008, we remember the Big 12. It was a little crazy. And I remember my dad telling me how good Texas Tech was that year and that Texas was going to go into Lubbock. They were going to lose. And we got to watch it all unfold. And it's just my favorite college football game I've ever watched. And that's the game that click. Yep. That's a sport I want to watch for the rest of my life. So for you, Josh, what was that game that you said, that's the one, and I love this? Graham Harold and Michael Crabtree that night in Lubbock, by the way. So I would say um, when Alabama played Miami in the national title game, this was a while back. Some of you may not have been born by this point. Uh, this was 92. That's the first time I was allowed to stay up past midnight. I was very, very young. And so I remember watching that. It was a, it was a big spread. Like Miami was a double digit favorite. They got smoked in New Orleans by Alabama. And that night I fell in love with college football. Never ceased. I I knew about it, but you know, I'm the only thing I knew about it at that point was my my friends and and older relatives were crazy about it. But then when I watched it that night, that's when it clicked for me. How old were you in 92 if you don't mind me asking? 6. I was 6 years old. Jordan check my birth certificate. I think I was 6. Years old. <laughs> Yeah, it depends on what time of year that was. Um, I don't have the copy on me, man. I'm sorry. I was six-ish. I was six-ish. All right. We're going to head over to Makoto. He's got actually a question about NC State and North Carolina. Hey, Josh. It's great to be back again for the second uh, show owners association. How did you pull that off, by the way? I, I don't know. Did got, you? I don't know. I may have thousands uh, hacked of people into your in system. this thing, and this man has been drawn twice, <laughs> and he's not related to me, and his nope. first name's not Josh. So nope. there is no favoritism. There is no cold ping pong ball. I was honest and I, I said, like, you didn't have to pick me again if it ever did come to that. Cause I asked you, like, if it's like, you know, if, if I get picked, you don't have to pick me, but you know, it's okay. It's all right. But yeah, going on to my question, uh, this is all for all my family down in North Carolina. This is a question for them. But um, is there any chance for UNC State, mainly NC State, but also UNC to make the ACC championship, but also potentially even go to the national championship, you know, with everything that's going on, especially with Clemson and all that? Is there a chance for them to make that ACC championship or the national championship? Yeah, in this, in this recent, you know, currently. Yeah, there is a chance to make the ACC championship. There's even a chance to make the playoff. I don't think there's a chance to make the national title. Now, I would say this is for North Carolina. There are some believers in NC State. Maybe I changed that opinion before the season, but right now, I look at North Carolina as the preemptive favorite out of those two. If you're prop betting, one could make the uh, playoff or win the ACC championship. Dude, there is such a gap between making the playoff and making the national title that. I don't even think it has to be or it can be referred to as interchangeable. I think in a lot of cases, that's still sort of in the vernacular. Like people say, 
they're they're a playoff team or they're they're a national championship contender. Those two things aren't the same thing. Notre Dame's been a playoff contender. Notre Dame's not been a national championship contender. There is a brick wall that you run into face first once you cannot push the ball down the field and then you get in that playoff setting. You revert back to South or North Carolina now and you could come at me which you could do. I don't know why I'm devil's advocating for you, but you could say, okay, but they got Sam Howell. They got receivers. Like they can push it down the field. That's true. I would have to see from North Carolina that they are not the defensive equivalent of like 2019 Oklahoma. Cause that Oklahoma team, it didn't matter what they could do offensively. Cause they just got splattered all over the place defensively. I mean, LSU had like 50 at the half, if I'm not mistaken against them and had to ease off the gas, not to hang 90 in a playoff game. So I say yes to the first one. Mm, not so much to the second one. All right, we'll head over to Nate. He's got a question about LSU's quarterback. Hey, Josh, I want to say thank you for bringing me on. I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. So with LSU having such a stat quarterback room, we've got Miles Brandon, Max Johnson. You know, um, those are like the two really huge contenders right now. Garrett Nussmeyer, do you think that Ed Ordron is going to end up showing more favoritism towards Miles Brennan? than he would Max Johnson. Do you think he's going to immediately put him in and say that he's the starter just because he's got that loyalty to him? Or do you think he's going to go with more clear-cut choice if it, if it does show that it's going to be Johnson? I do think that. I do think he's going to show Brennan favoritism. I don't think that will come into play. Let me, let me say this. I think if this thing's competitive, I think there will be favoritism shown to Brennan. I think in a lot of cases, Orgeron is going to want to validate his initial choice. He's not been shy about saying this, by the way. Like he has talked several times, even last year. He said, when, when Miles comes back, he's the starter. And it was like, it was independent of any further investigation, any further uh, evaluation. It's just, he's going to be the guy. It's almost one of those situations where he's a believer that you cannot take a job from a guy until he loses it. I've never been a believer in that. Like I think talent can take your job from you, whether you're injured or not. But I'm not saying Miles Brennan won't be the guy and he's not the best guy. What I am saying is that's been in the back of my mind this entire time because I've heard a lot of good stuff about Max Johnson from down there, but I've always had in the back of my mind, I wonder if he's got to be definitively better than Brennan for him to get that shot. Because I think if they're even, I think it's going to be Brennan's job. Yeah, I fully believe that. Uh, and that's that's what I was wondering too. But you got to think, Miles Brennan, for the last five years that he's been there, he's been hurt almost every year. Yeah. Like Max Johnson like competed better in the last couple games that he played than Brennan did at the beginning of the season. That's what I that that's what I remember about him. I mean, everyone right. remembers the Florida game, sure. Uh, that's a that's a great trophy case highlight game for him, but. I remember the competitiveness, and that's why I don't dismiss him. I think a lot of the, you know, the preview magazine crowd is going to have Miles Brennan penciled in there, unless something happens in the spring game that's like spectacular. But I don't ever discount that, that kind of competitive spirit. Like you're going into you're going into a, a stadium where the other team has everything up to and including possibly a playoff spot to lose, and you're a three plus touchdown underdog, and never once did LSU look like the second best team in Gainesville that night. Like that stuff sticks with me. So you, you, he may not, he may be the second, third best quarterback there, but in terms of competitiveness, like, I don't know that anyone's got the edge on him. So if someone does beat him out, it's going to have to be raw talent that does it. All right. Nick's got a question about going for it on fourth down. Hey, Josh and Jordan. Uh, first off, I wanted to make a statement to the suits that CBS and 247, I know that they want to reward ingenuity and creativity. So uh, I think a raise is probably in order for you guys having concocted 
such an engaging uh, and unique product here. Can you confirm? Wow, couldn't agree more. Can you confirm, Jordan, settle down. Nick, can you confirm that you don't have a script to read right now and that came from your own heart and soul and mind? Uh, it, it was it was purely genuine. I promise. Okay, thank yeah. you. Now I'm not saying I, I, now I want to say I fully. I'm a good actor, but I just think. <laughs> well, that's uh, my question, which kind of centers around like this article that I read a few years back. It was about this high school coach uh, who kind of just made it his blanket policy to always go for on fourth down, always go for two, and always kick onside kicks. Which, on the face of it, seems like. Uh, it's kind of a crazy idea, but turns out the guy is kind of crazy like a fox because he ended up winning, I think, five state titles or something like that using this this uh, policy. And it kind of makes sense from like a pure statistics or probabilistic point of view, which we could go into, but it's kind of boring. Um, but I guess my question is, given especially the fact that the game is kind of tilting more and more in favor of offensive production, do you see a day in the future where going for it on fourth down or going for two becomes kind of the default option and punting is more just situational? Yeah, I think we're rapidly approaching it. I think some programs are there, or at least they tell you they're there. If, they're, if you're sitting in a clinic setting with them in the offseason, a lot of these coaches tell you, oh, we go for it on fourth down. But then when it's um, fill-in-the-blank cutting time and it's late third quarter, early fourth quarter, and you know, you've only got 12 of these games – and one of them is going to be decided based on this decision, then all of a sudden you may shrivel up a little bit more and you may want to punt it. But yes, I think we're there. And the reason we're there is because yards are less valuable now. 10 and 20 yard chunks of the field are less valuable. They're, they're easier to get. Therefore, they are less valuable. And so right now, you know, it drives me crazy. And I am conservative by nature when it comes to play calling and in-game strategy. But it even drives me crazy now when I see a team that is at midfield or past midfield and plus territory and they get to like, you know, it's the 41 yard line, let's say. So they don't trust their field goal kicker over 50 yards. And they're in what you would call no man's land because they get to a fourth and long situation. They just think they have to punt. And I'm like, what is the best you're going to pick up? Cause you know, as well as I do half the time that ball ends up in the end zone and it comes out of the 25 yard line. So you just netted yourself 15 yards. Why, why don't you just throw the ball? I mean, why don't you just literally hail Mary the ball? because it's not going to be all that worse an outcome. And you actually have a reward in that risk reward proposition. So yeah, I think we're getting there. I think there is still a, a little fraternity of coaches, like a layer of coaches that are probably eventually going to be pushed out of the game because it's, it's, it doesn't jibe well when you're competing against people who do have that ultra aggressive mentality to not have it. So I think for the time being, it's still like a novelty. I think it'll be the norm. If, if not 10 years down the road, even like five years down the road. Dustin's got a running back debate question. Dustin, go ahead. Thanks for having me, y'all. Josh, has been following you since yeah, your days on Columbus on the local news, man. So it's like that band you got to see in high school for $5 on Friday, and you get to hear them on the radio for the first time. So it's awesome to see y'all grow and uh, become something truly special on YouTube. But question was all age-old debate, strictly collegiate. Bo Jackson or Herschel Walker? So firstly, as I stall so I can answer the question, thank you. Uh, if you were paying $5 to watch us in Columbus, you got ripped off. But I appreciate <laughs> it. I appreciate it anyway. So um, my answer to this 
I, I figured out a long time ago how I could have a foolproof answer because I'm worried, you know, you know, Columbus, so I'm right there on the Chattahoochee River. So there is no right answer to this. There's only a wrong answer. So what I started saying a long time ago is it made me sound way smarter than I was. I said, what do you think? And so then, you know, let, well, uh, here's how I'll do it. Dustin, what do you think? Who would you pick in this? Oh, that's not the name of this game, but I'll play. Um, I'm on partial. I'm a Georgia fan, so I'm always hanging with Herschel Walker. But I feel like they're they were cut from the same cloth. You know, it's, it's kind of – you could have put Herschel Walker in Auburn and put Bo Jackson in Athens, and I feel like the results could have been almost the same. I mean, they were just – both of them are just straight freaks of nature uh, with strong will. But I'm going to lean towards Herschel, uh, but that's just because I'm a dog. Yep. So here's how that drill goes. I would listen to you say that, and I would nod my head. When I would look very inquisitive, and then I would say, all right, you take Herschel, and I'll take what's left over. And then I just move on. And so I'm happy with either one of them. Because I, I agree with what you said. I, I, could, I could plug and play either one of them, either place. Like, if you got one stat category, one of them dominated in, and I could throw two more in your face the other way. So, like, that's my answer. I, I fall right on the fence with it. I would gladly take whichever one's left over after I let someone else pick first. And four. Well, how about a little easier question? Country's Barbecue or 13th Street? All right. So this gets into- <laughs> okay. So, so the answer the answer is Countries. However, when I was working in the fabric warehouse down on 12th Street, that won't be named because they're not sponsoring us, um, but they are still in business. When I was working there, we would get catered from 13th Street Barbecue every Friday. So I learned to love it. But if I am voluntarily going barbecue in Columbus, I'm going to Countries and Countries North. Speaking, you, you, you hypothetically mentioned me yep. being in a band. Well, I really was in a band in high school and Countries North let us play there. And we ended up getting them in trouble. Not that I advocated for underage drinking, but some of it ended up happening at our concert. <laughs> and so that's a fun memory. Uh, I also, another fun story, went to Countries North one night and ended up coaxing a waitress there into ordering a, a wrestling pay-per-view for us, which was like 30 bucks back then. And nice. trouble again in, in that method. <laughs> And this is not the era of wrestling that Jordan likes. This was the good era of wrestling back in the like early 2000s, late 90s. Yeah. WWF. um, Yeah, yeah. It was before the E. So I, for many reasons, some of those included, I go countries. TM4, man. Well, I appreciate you taking your time, fellas. Y'all be good. Absolutely, man. All right. I'm going to let that wrestling comment slide. We're going to go over to uh, Andrew. He's got a question about NIL. Thanks for having me. Um, I know... NIL's kind of been a oh, touchy subject here just because it's kind of like an onion. There's a lot of layers there. And I'm sure there's an answer to this one. It's probably going to be the same way. But I was kind of curious, in terms of NIL on the horizon and the potential for players, you know, to generate as much revenue for themselves as they could, would there be a situation where universities could possibly forego offering scholarships? scholarships typically kind of being a form of compensation as it were for the player. Yep. So this is a phenomenal question. Um, here's, here's the easy answer. No one has a clue because no one's going to be the first program to say, Oh, you're making money. Well, you're not an amateur anymore. So if you're not an amateur, we're not giving you scholarships anymore. However, that question is going to be there twofold. Number one, the first side of that question is going to be if these kids are making money, way above and beyond what the equivalent value of the scholarship is, why are we still giving them the scholarship? Okay, that's going to be a question that's on its own little frontier over here. But then there's this second frontier, and that second frontier doesn't have anything to do with NIL, but I think 
it can loosely be lumped into the same paradigm. If kids are being paid, I mean, like on the record up front, you see them doing endorsement deals on the side. I mean, if, if I got a kid over here who's doing a $3,500 a month deal with Verizon in his hometown of, of Omaha, Nebraska, all of a sudden, he's not an amateur anymore by the definition of what amateurism is. How do I treat him? And I'm not talking about me. I'll be the same way. But talking about college football public in large, how do you view college athletes? I'll open it up here. We can talk about this. So when, when you know guys are getting paid, I'm not talking about hush money or dark money in recruiting. I'm talking about out front, in front of God and everyone. You know these dudes are making money. Does it change the way you look at them? Because right now, when you talk about NFL players, you talk about them totally different. Nothing's off limits. You openly criticize, feel comfortable doing that because they're pro athletes, right? It's fine. But with college athletes, you sort of put on the kid gloves and you can be critical but we're not going to drag some kid over the coals. Does it change because they make money or is it the same in your mind because you still draw a difference between college and pro? I mean, I think it would probably, it could go both ways, but I think that the scrutiny and the, you know, criticizing of a particular player, especially if they are, you know, a highly touted player or somebody who, you know, their brand is going to be much more prevalent or at least much more, in the public eye, yeah, I think that their criticism, you know, criticism and credit alike is going to ramp up probably more so than some maybe a lower key second or third string player who may still have opportunities, but nothing like, say, your starting quarterback. Do a show of hands. I'm drinking protein as we do this, by the way. So give me a show of hands. How many people will be more likely to take the kid gloves off when talking about college athletes if you know they're being paid a lot of money? Oh man. So, so a split room. That's good. I want to find those topics. Okay. So this is me taking a mental note that this is something I'm going to talk about on a future show. So I appreciate that. Uh, it's interesting and it's going to evolve. So the way you feel now may not be the way you feel two years from now is my point. I, I fit that description too. Hey Josh, can I add something about that real yeah. quick? So when you're talking about that, it's funny enough that basically you're the, you're looking at college players when they're making money like that. They're basically NFL players minus the salary. And then you think about it, the whole point of going to college is the education. So if they're just going there for the football and the endorsements, like what's the point of having a college? You well, I mean, a team. To, to quote Cardell Jones, we ain't come here to play no school. So I don't know that everybody is going to college for the education. I think you're going there because that just happens to be where the football program is. Um, it's not one size fits all, though. Like, I mean, I guarantee you just as much as Cardell Jones said that when he was at Ohio State, there are several other kids in that locker room that like relish the opportunity to put that degree on their wall. And, and they also may be really good at football. They probably are because they're playing at Ohio state. So it's going to be as usual, there's going to be this broad brush and, and everyone, a lot of people are going to take it and we're going to paint the whole thing one way. And in reality, you need to go by, you know, that painting set where you got like the different size brushes and one of them's like really fine point. Okay. Well, you got to pull out the really fine point brush. Clearly, I have a background in artistry. And you got to paint each individual point on the canvas a different way. By the way, that's also a good strategy for life. I was going to also kind of add, you know, also realizing that, you know, it's a very small percentage of student of student athletes or, you know, football players in this case that are actually going to make it pro. Correct. So while, yeah, this is an added, you know, income stream for them. It's also going to be interesting to see how universities, you know, if this were to happen, how they can spin it. So, you know, if they're in a position like like what you were discussing on the podcast last or yesterday about Apex with Florida State, mm -hmm. 
So if universities start coming out with these programs, like, all right, instead of, you know, offering a full ride scholarship, we now have an opportunity for you to boost your brand, boost your revenue potential and be able to use the university as a vessel in doing so. Yeah. You're a market. We were talking about it in the last session. You are now two parts. You're one part, well, three parts, I guess. You're one part university, one part football program, one part marketing firm. And that's the way I that's the way I'm looking at major college football moving forward. And you could say athletics, but I'm dealing with football. You you get the best of the best out there. The programs that are still the alpha, top tier one, tier two, five and ten years from now, they will have mastered marketing just as much as recruiting and football operations. All right. Next, we've got Thomas. He's got a question about Power Five head coaches. Go ahead, Thomas. All right. So, how can App State and like UCF continually have success with the high coach turnover, while like other schools like Tennessee struggle and have a high turnover but never achieve success, or it, Arkansas? It's all about culture. So. Um, the way I can describe it is, well, culture, so two different things. Culture, they have such a defined, workable process that they have developed the car, essentially, big metaphorical deal when you're talking about culture there. So you build the car. If you build it the right way, you can just it's like a rental car. You know, you can keep putting new drivers in it, and it's not as easy as that. But theoretically, that's the culture you've built, and you built it to sustain itself so much so that no one person can make or break it. But also what they're able to do, because they're not a huge like global brand or anything like that, you don't have a million different things on your plate every week. That's why not a lot of people are able to operate uh, a program like Nick Saban, because Nick Saban doesn't sleep. He's got like 27 hours in his day, so he can just do a whole lot of stuff. Most guys aren't capable of that. But at App State, you don't have to be capable of that. You just have to run the football program. When I restructured my deal here not too long ago, I restructured it in a way to where I took a lot of the operational aspects off my plate because I, and, and fortunately my bosses agreed, I should be tasked with running that show. I'm pointing behind me at the logo and, and formatting and executive producing and doing everything from a branding and marketing standpoint. But every, every bit of my energy needs to be invested in that. Well, if all of a sudden I got to run meetings and keep up with tech and do this and that, all of a sudden every hour and every second of every day you spend doing that is a second of your day taken away from what your key focus should be. Some people can do that. Some people can't. At App State, you just get the fortune to worry about football. So like, that's why I think some of those programs are able to sustain success the way they do. Okay, I have a quick follow-up to that real quick. So do you think that the athletic director or the head coach has a bigger impact? on the football program because I want to say head coach just because it's their thumbprint. However, like looking at UCF and App State, like they have such a high turnover rate of head coaches, but the athletic director usually stays the same. I know UCF's just left to Tennessee. I but think, usually I think at the bigger programs, the head coach becomes the answer more and more. At the smaller programs, I think athletic director is the answer more and more. But that's also a good topic. I'll probably, you know what? You formatted like the next two weeks of shows for me already because I'm literally writing that down. So I would say I would say smaller programs disproportionate to AD, bigger programs disproportionate to head coach in terms of the answer. Selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, next up is actually Josh. He has got a question about a couple SEC quarterbacks. Go ahead, Josh. All right, so um, I just want to say that uh, basically, I think that Kyle Trask versus Matt Jones, that that debate is too often uh, open and shut. I think a lot of people see Mac Jones as the obviously superior quarterback, but I really do think that there's a debate there. Uh, I'm a Florida fan living in Alabama, so I'm used to getting the hate from Alabama fans for any of this, but I, I kind of think Kyle Trask is the quarterback I'd want on my team. I want to hear if you can make the case for either both of them or uh, if you can't make the case for one of them, you know, and uh, I know you would never do this, but one of my least favorite arguments is that uh, a quarterback was carried by the talent around him. Oh, far be it. I God forbid. Oh, man. Because there are no talented players in the NFL, as we all know. So you're going to have to yeah. get by with scraps in the NFL. All right. Yeah. So. I got. I think I got the general uh, feeling of the question. I, I minimized the window. I'm trying to pull it back up. All right, there you guys are. So, um, ludicrous. First off, is the stance that oh, he's he's a product of his talent and whatnot. So I'm not even going to dignify that part of it with a response. But the other stuff you were talking about there, it goes back to system in a lot of cases. There could very well be a situation where. Uh, Mac Jones is a better fit in one place than Trask is, and the total opposite is the case in another team within their own division, even. But what I think happens a lot of times is in our in our industry, like the whole the whole mock draft apparatus within the sports media industry, here's what happens a lot of times. Once you get behind the scenes, you see this stuff. There's not a lot of creation. There's a little bit of creation and a whole lot of aggregation. So here's what happens. Happens in preview magazine season all the time, too. Phil Steele, for example, is a creator. He is an originator. Whether you like his magazine or not, he goes and does his own research. I take the same approach on our show. I don't go in and, and take from a bunch of other people and put our show together. 
most people don't take that approach. And so what happens is the preparation for most people, if they're doing a mock draft, let's say, is they go and look at other mock drafts and then do a collaboration and combination of that, and that's their mock draft. Well, here's the problem. If, if all of that's stemming off one or two originators, if there's one originator out there who happened to say, my opinion is Mac Jones is clearly heads and tails above Kyle Trask, it just gets regurgitated across the entire spectrum. And all of a sudden, you look around and you hear it from every angle and you say, it must be true because all these people think it. No, they don't all think it. A lot of them are just parroting it because one or two people happen to think it. Now, I'm, I'm saying that independent of my opinion here. Like, I'm, I'm not some big mock draft guy. I'm not an evaluator of talent. I see what people are saying. Maybe it'll be true just as often as it is. It isn't. But I don't like if you're trying to if you came to me and you said, hey, I think Kyle Trask may be better than Mac Jones. OK, like that's your opinion may very well be true. I'm certainly not going to call you stupid just because I could pull up five mock drafts that disagree with you. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I'll add one last quick thing. Uh, I want to say that I, I don't think it's open and shut the other way. I just think that there should at least be an argument. I think that a lot of people could say that Mac Jones is better and back it up and I'll agree. But or not agree, uh, agree to disagree. But I think it should be a lot more open and a lot more open to debate. I'll allow it. I will allow it and even nod my head at it. All right. Last up is Braden. He actually has a Pate State University question. This ought to be good. I've got some sources there. So go ahead, Braden. Yeah. Um, my name is uh, Braden, uh, YouTube user Braden Insane. Subscribe by that the a way. boy. That, hold on. I interrupted you. Clearly state the name of the channel where you get your plug in. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, subscribe to Braden Insane. It's actually, I mean, I'm a cartoon critic, so your audience probably wouldn't have much crossover with mine. But never know. Okay. We get animated. And actually, I'm the guy if, that you actually read my comment aloud where I said that like begging was the coward's way out. Um, it was well, I, remember. It. I remember yeah. I got it tattooed on my lower back, actually. I don't have time to show you right now. <laughs> anyway, no, my question is so, uh, yeah, say you're the athletic director at Pate State. And um, and your head coach in his first three years, the record is three and nine, four and eight, five and seven. So he's improving, but he hasn't been to a bowl and he has not beaten a rival yet, although the games are getting more competitive. And um, you have a top 30 recruiting class hanging in the balance. Do you fire him or do you let him have more uh, more time as that coach? No, he's gone. He's gone uh, because. I'm not going to ever let a recruiting class hold my decision-making process hostage for obvious reasons. But then even within those reasons, if you look at how the sport's evolving right now, check out what Michigan State's doing with a, a new staff. Look at what Florida State's doing with a new staff. The transfer portal allows you to very quickly overturn your roster, well above and beyond, well at a quicker pace than you used to be able to. You used to just have to go one recruiting class at the time. Now you can go one recruiting class, oh, and get 12 transfers in because a bunch of other kids left. And so, no, man, first off, we're not winning enough games to even worry about whether he can recruit. What, what does it matter if, if he's getting the guys on campus, but he can't win with them? That was the same deal with Tom Herman. Like everyone said, we can't fire Tom Herman at Texas. He's got a top 10 class. He always has. It, they already were there when he got hired and he did nothing to quell that. He wasn't winning with them. So like, why would you let that hold you hostage? Well, that's, uh, I was going to say, that's, I actually think Tom Herman was a bit better than the guy I'm describing. I think Tom Herman should have at least been given one more year. Well, I did a poor job hiring this guy, obviously. So that's on me. Like that's my fault. That's not your fault. And yeah. so really what we need to be asking is, is my job on the line. And 
you didn't you didn't include that in part of your question, but um, uh, I mean, I, I I guess it's kind of just assumed that it's not, but I don't know. I hope it is, but yeah, I would I would never like in all seriousness, I would never let a recruiting class dictate whether I fire a guy or not. If if it's time to go, it's time to go. All right, let's start with Stewart. Uh, he has got a question uh, about a couple rival SEC teams. Yeah, so I'm I'm a Georgia fan. I was just uh, you know. With the lack of product, with the production that Alabama's losing at receiver and the production that Georgia's losing, more specifically at corner, but at DB overall, which which one do you think would be more of a problem by the end of the year? I'd say Georgia's DBs. I would answer this if the shoes were on the opposite feet there, um, just because I think it's a harder position in general to break in. I think it's a harder position to learn. The two defenses we're talking about here is Nick Saban and Kirby Smart. So in a lot of ways, it's like the same defense. Uh, they asked their DBs to do a lot, a lot of pattern matching, a lot of multiplicity there. So I would say DBs. Um, we don't have to wait long, by the way, because Georgia plays Clemson in week one. So we oh, yeah. get to see it right out of the gate. And really, to be honest with you, I think Kirby Smart's praying for a lot of rain Saturday so that he does. he has an excuse to not show any passing game in their G-Day scrimmage. Uh, but I really think in a broader sense, I think Alabama is going to be okay at receiver because I, I think right now what they're doing is mixing and matching a lot. They have so much talent and they have married themselves to the proper schemes and concepts that I have a hard time believing that they're not going to be top five in the country at receiver. I'm not saying they're going to match last year's production or the last two years production, but yeah, I'd, out of the two, granted, uh, is, this is this is relatively speaking. I'd have a lot more concern about Georgia's DBs. All right, we'll go over to Austin. We talked uh, Georgia, Alabama. Now we're going to talk a little Auburn. Uh, hey, Josh. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm an Auburn fan, Auburn student, actually, my last semester at Auburn. Um, I spent a lot of time around the program as a four-year marching band member. Um, and uh, I just wanted to get your insight. We've got Harson as the new coach. Um He's kind of walking into a situation that um, a lot of head coaches uh, wouldn't really be complaining about. You've got new facilities on the horizon. You've got a decent talent pool. Um, you got pretty experienced coordinators, it looks like, on both sides of the ball. Uh, so with that being said, in his first season, uh, what would you define? What is the first thing that you're going to be looking for, the main thing as far as uh, player development, recruiting, culture, um, that you're going to be looking for to kind of define um, what kind of impact he's going to have on the program. Line of scrimmage play uh, and then line of scrimmage recruiting. That's a little ways down the road, but I'll tell you what I'm looking at. So they are inheriting a promising mess, I guess is the way I would describe Bo Nix right now. Promising because he's very talented. I don't think he was overrated one bit coming out of high school. The star rating we had on him, I think it's fully accurate. Watched him in high school was very, very close to that program like I, every every one of the top schools would have taken him. They were all after him. So they didn't all whiff on their evaluation is my point. He went to a place that was very ill-equipped to develop him as a quarterback. He knew that. So it's it was his decision. He's paid the price for it. So forget about that. That's in the past. Now the future is Harson comes in, hires Bobo, who's really good with quarterbacks, and they inherit a guy who's ultra talented. But like based on what I've heard out of spring, a vast majority of it's been spent deprogramming him and my whole question has been like, how far backwards do they have to go before they can then put it in drive and start to go forward? And I don't know that they're there yet. And so that'll be like a week over week deal. I don't think there's a quarterback in America this year who will probably look different week one to week six, at least like experienced guys, than Bo Nix. True freshman's supposed to look like that. 
he's a third year starter. And yet he could look like Bambi just trying to get his feet under him in week one. And then all of a sudden, you never know, like it would be a best case scenario, but you never know if all of a sudden week six or week seven, you're not getting texts from your buddies. If you're like a Wyoming fan saying, Hey man, this Knicks dude at Auburn, like, I know it's year three, but turn over to CBS. Like, look at him. He looks like a different player all of a sudden. Maybe, maybe Auburn's like some sleeper down here. That's unlikely. It's not impossible though. We've seen crazier stuff than that happened before. All right. Next up we've got Daniel. Sorry about that. Y'all. Um, so we're going Daniel, do you not do this stuff? Do you not do podcasting and whatnot very First often? First of all, it said your host muted you. So I came in ready to go, but I think I was sprinkling my water. And so that's probably messing up the stream. So what I was my trying apologies. to do was give you an opportunity to plug your podcast. That's what I was trying to yeah, do. Yeah. Follow us at the extra point pod on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you very much. Look at you, you reaching go. down and helping us out. Um, look at you completely missing the bump in the set. It, go ahead. I'm a humble guy. You know, follow me at Deep South Daniel on face on <laughs> on Twitter. Um, anyways, no, I, my question is actually about rivalries. Um, to me, that's the best part of college football. Um, we just talked about Auburn, obviously Auburn's got several great rivalries, um, with like Georgia Clemson playing this year. Um, it's reminding me, Hey, this is a rivalry that really should happen. It's a great regional game. Um, but it made me start thinking, what are some good rivalries that you would like to see that aren't rivalries? They're not two teams that go together uh, currently. What are, you know, two or three different, you know, maybe just one that you'd like to see uh, two non-rival teams, bring them together um, and make them play every year. I would love, so I'd love to see A&M in Texas. That's an old rivalry. Oh, yeah, I would love to course. see that renewed. I'd love to see LSU, Texas. Sounds like I'm a Texas grad. I would love to see yeah. LSU, Texas be an every year thing. I also, um, like, I'd love to see someone like Oklahoma play someone like Alabama every year. Those are, those are two programs that, to me, like, they seem very similar. Color schemes, very similar. Tradition right. is very similar. I'm not saying the trophy cases exactly line up, although Oklahoma's is very impressive, too. But I would love to see something like that. And then also, I'm a big fan. When I was growing up, now, this happened long before I was born, but when I was growing up, I used to always – see like my dad have VHS tapes of really, really old games when he was growing up. And I would look at how big a deal it was when Southern Cal would come to the South to play like Alabama or someone like that. At that point, it would have been in Birmingham or, or if they play Georgia or, or Penn State plays Georgia. Right. I want to get like those, those geographical matchups. And so you've got like the old school rivalry, like Texas and Texas A&M. But I also am a big fan of pitting geographical regions against each other. So, you know, like it, it would be any of Ohio State, Florida, or Penn State, LSU, or, or like USC versus Georgia, stuff like that. I was going to say something recent, like putting Ohio State versus Alabama, two that are basically pacing ahead of of their whole conference. It'd be great to see them, you know, someone have, have to end up with a loss in the, you know, in the L column, you know, early in the season, um, or at any point in the season, something that you could count on to, you know, behemoths like that. But yeah, I like yeah. LSU, Texas, too. As long as we understood how to properly interpret those losses, then yeah. I'd be fine. And I think a lot of other people, um, they understand that when they're scheduling in the future, if you look at it, we're going to have to know how to interpret losses. A win is not a win in college football, and that's a longer than 25-minute discussion, but it's a very strong stance of mine. All right. Up next is Jason. He's got a question about the best coordinators in college football. Yeah, I was just, you know, thinking a little bit back to uh, 96 when Stoops kind of joined uh, Spurrier's staff, and that was really their breakthrough year. Or maybe you look at Brady 
at LSU back in 2019, maybe more recently. But who would you say are the game-changing or the best offensive and defensive coordinators in the SEC? And then maybe, you know, highlight one or two nationally. And and a little disqualifier here is if, like, if uh, Mullen is calling his own offense, then let's not count him. Let's count, like, a pure offensive uh, coordinator that's an assistant coach. Yep. Um, Jason, what time is it where you're at right now? It is 8.15 in the morning on Thursday. And that is because you are where right now? Uh, I'm in Hong Kong. I just wanted to put that on the record. Thank you, sir. (laughs) And so you're going to eat breakfast immediately when we get done here. So I would say I'm going to go way off the radar. I think maybe for Southern fans, Jim Leonard at Wisconsin is, to me, one of the best defensive coordinators in America. He had an offer from the Packers, and and he turned it down to stay at Wisconsin. And it wasn't one of those deals where – Oh, his agent floated rumors of him having an offer, but it wasn't really there. Jim Leonard could have been the defensive coordinator of the Packers if he wanted to. And I don't know if anyone's ever been to Wisconsin, but the Packers were a pretty big deal up there. And he turned it down to stay with the University of Wisconsin. So I would go Leonard. Um, You know, there's one that's interesting. We were just talking about this program. Sarkeesian obviously was at Alabama and just went to Texas. I thought he did as good a job last year as any coordinator I've ever seen. Like Joe Brady was the year before at LSU. Then what Sark did last year was so incredible to the point where that was such a system thing. It was such a perfected scheme that by the time they got to the title game, I don't know how well you guys remember this. Some of you probably turned it off. There was a point where obviously Waddle was never 100% that night, but then they lost Devontae Smith too. And so there was a span where if you'd like pinpointed that moment in time, over the course of that last year leading up to that moment, Steve Sarkeesian had lost Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, and then Jalen Waddell, and then Devontae Smith, which are four superstar first-round all-time college greats, and they were still just moving the ball up and down the field on Ohio State. They outscored them, I think, from that point in the game, 14 to nothing. So my point in saying that is Sark's now the head coach at Texas. Bill O'Brien took his job. And so Bill O'Brien, who was the head coach of the Texans not too long ago, is now the offensive coordinator at Alabama. He could be the answer here. There's no way to know because we haven't had that game yet or we haven't had any game with him as the OC there yet. But what I'm wondering and what I'm going to focus on a lot of the offseason is, is Alabama one of these places like Oklahoma now to where it doesn't matter who comes through there. They have such a perfected culture and offensive culture and offensive system that instead of the entire program adjusting to whoever that coach is, that coach comes in and adjusts to what the program is. And it's just like plug and play. So I know that's kind of hypothetical. I wonder if Bill O'Brien is the answer or one of the answers here, even though he's never called a play for Alabama before. Um, Todd Munkin at Georgia is another interesting concept that we also really haven't gotten a full flavor of because they didn't get the chance in spring installs last year to really put in what they wanted to put in. So to me, we had one of those year zero situations with Georgia offensively last year. And now this year we get the year one full off season under your belt, full spring with JT Daniels under your belt, lost pickings. Still got a lot of receiver talent there. could probably, and will probably hit up the transfer portal after spring. So those are a couple names. Um, you know, like I, I'm trying to think, I think those would be where I'd go. Um, understanding before the season, we'll do like our full offensive defensive coordinator, like hierarchy deal on late kick. So that's when I'll dive into that a whole lot more. What about Venables? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Venables is yeah. so established that I almost like look over him. Right. It's like if you were yeah. to ask 
who are the best head coaches, I would kind of assume that Saban's just there and like we're looking yeah. past him. Yeah, Brent Venables, Venables is good in a lot of ways, but he's really good because of the multiplicity, which we talked about in one of the sessions we've already had tonight. That is the new age defensively. You're not going to be great every year, but they understand how to be situational. They understand how not to look the same way week to week, but also have the ability to beat you with athletes instead of just scheme, which is a lot more rigid. Yeah, like the the three safety thing that, that they did with Simmons against Ohio State. Just I yeah, mean, yeah, it's not on tape. Like you haven't done it against right. anyone else. But yet, when you watch your guys out there, it's not a Chinese fire drill or anything. Hat tip, Jason. It's not a Chinese fire drill or anything. Like they know exactly what they're doing. It looks like they run it every week, and it's because it's not overly complicated. But you've got the athletes. Like I've I've talked to some people around Brent Venables, for example, and whereas the rumor used to be he's going to be a head coach one day. He may still be a head coach one day, but he's kind of let it be known to people that he is not going to go somewhere to be a head coach unless it is somewhere like Kirby did with Georgia or or Lincoln Riley did or Ryan Day did with Oklahoma and Ohio State, where he has this access to the same kind of talent he has at Clemson right now. Because he's done it both ways. He's done it with inferior talent. He's done it with superior talent. And funny thing happens, once you coach superior talent and you find out all the things it lets you do and how multiple it lets you be, you don't really want to go back to the inferior route where you got to, you know, like keep your head above water every week to draw breath. And so, like, I think that's where a lot of people are headed. All right. Up next is Odyssey. He has got a question about uh, college football actually separating itself from the NCAA. Yeah, hey Josh, uh, Texas A&M fan here. Uh, I've heard I've heard this on other media sources, and I believe I've heard it on your show before as well. But the the, the rumor of college football separating itself from the NCAA and kind of creating its own governing body. Where do you see the biggest benefit in the sport if something like this were to be done? Governance is to me the biggest draw there. Uh, governance mm-hmm. meaning instead of outsourcing compliance and enforcement, you kind of handle it in-house. So I think right now there are a lot of aspects of the NCAA enforcement model that are badly mm-hmm. outdated and antiquated. But it's not, I know I know the NCAA is like a, like a dartboard and everyone just likes to throw at them. I do too. I participate yep. in that. But mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, like the NCAA is only what the the individual presidents made the NCAA. It's kind of like Roger Goodell is only what the team presidents made Roger Goodell. And so you've got to have a situation where I think if you're of the mindset, let's say that you want this split to happen, the split would be because someone at the University of Oklahoma would say there is no way that Tulsa should have the exact same voice in this room that we do. We're more powerful. We're more important. Is it arrogant? Yeah. Is it true? Also probably, yeah. And so that's where I think that would come from. And in this new world where you have self-governance and you have self-compliance, and by self, I mean kind of policing your own self, I think that also the seat at the table, the size of your seat would be directly proportioned to, I guess, your value. Define it however you want to metrics-wise, but how valuable are you to where you know, Oklahoma has a bigger seat than Texas San Antonio does. It may be UTS is not even in the room at that point. But yeah, I, I think it all comes back to compliance and enforcement. I think that's really what the benefit would be. Okay. And, and do you see like a route of this where 
you know, if a new governing body did take place, where it'd have more of a model like like the NFL, where it'd be, hey, we, you know, TV revenue, TV revenue is going to be, you know, split amongst all the conferences equally, or you know, we're going to handle the scheduling for everybody. You know, weaker teams get like a last place schedule, and like Alabama gets like a first place schedule. Is that somewhat of a possibility, or do you think? the universities and conferences like having that control and won't like relinquish it. They're never relinquishing that. I mean, you would have to pry it out of their cold, dead hands. They would never relinquish that. And that is the drawback. Like that's the hang up. Mm -hmm. Because when we talk about splitting, okay, are we totally splitting away or are we just doing it in some ways? Whereas you maintain your autonomy in schedule making, but yet we have collectivism when it comes to enforcement that we agree on these 60 teams or 80 teams or whoever it is. Mm -hmm. The the point is that you can tell it's like trying to grab fog or nail jello to the wall or whatever metaphor you want to use. It's not easy to answer because 15 different people would have 15 different ways to answer it. So it's fun to say. And if you were to ask, it's like playoff expansion. When you ask people, is it going to happen? Everyone says, oh, yeah, it's inevitable. When and how? And then they go, I don't know. It's just inevitable. And then you're like no closer to it happening at the end of the conversation than you were when you walked in the room. All right. Ben is going to wrap us up. He actually has a question about Kirby Smart at Georgia. So going the last year, as a Florida fan, we expected to win the East. And because we had the returning quarterback, the returning production. So this year, now that Georgia has those expectations and Kirby has already won the East multiple times, won the SEC, gone to the playoffs, and he has those expectations again, where would you where would he be in 2022 if he does not meet one of those expectations? If he doesn't win the East and he doesn't make the playoff? And then it's not due to injury. I think he'd be in a prove it position, not prove it or else. I don't think there would be any hot seat. Let me scratch that. There would be hot seat talk. There would be no valid hot seat talk. So let me put it that way. Um, he has every resource that he needs at his disposal. And I think we all understand that. At the same time, it's still really, really hard to win at this level. He has not had like a down year after his first year. He has not had that down year yet. He has not had that that recycling year. Like they've been there. They've been either there or, or right at the precipice every single season since his first season. So you get afforded that. I'm not saying if it, hap- if it happens this year, it happens this year or two years down the road, whatever. I don't think there'd be any kind of serious conversation about any kind of job security after this year if they went nine and three. And if there was, here's all you'd have to do. All you'd have to do if you're his representation is do what James Franklin's folks always do. Float rumors about the NFL or float rumors about Southern Cal coming after him. And as soon as that happens, everyone magically falls in line and the loyalty is back. That's how you play that game. Well, I mean, my buddy who's a Georgia fan, he's always gone into the, like, I don't want this to be another Mark Rick situation where we go on 15 years and we have a team every three or four years that can make the national championship then just absolutely just bombs the sec championship or a bad play doesn't go their way like so well, that's a, let me let me just i want you to think about this how old your friend uh he's 17 okay so this is understandable um to have at the university of georgia a team that's capable of a national title only every three or four years when you relate that to what their history has been that's phenomenal mark richt had a phenomenal stretch there. If you're young, even if you're my age, 
you didn't get to see like all those years in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Now there were there were brief periods of being elite, but by and large, it was mediocrity. You talk to 60-year-old Georgia fans and they understand this a little bit more. Like they they don't speak about the Mark Richt era in such an irreverent tone as some of the younger folks, even my age and younger do. A lot of the younger folks look at it and say, man, we're only going to be as good as we were when Richt was here. It's really good to be as good as you were when Richt was there. I get what the expectation though is. Because now there's never been more investment in the program. There's never been more attention on the program. You got this like 800 pound elephant, kind of literally, kind of figuratively over in Tuscaloosa. And that's what everyone's trying to match. You get the blessing of having the resources. You get the curse of taking the resources and having to try and beat that. So I get it. I, I'm practical. About, I'm pragmatic about this. I understand how that works. But I just always kind of laugh when someone says, man, we're not going to be any better than we were against Mark Rick. Well, the fact of the matter is on a scale of one to 10, 10, 10 being the best you could be, Rick at Georgia was like a seven and a half or an eight, but people think he was like a two or a three and there's nowhere to go but up from there. And that's not the case. There's a lot further to fall from Mark Rick than there is room to climb from him. Okay, thank you. If I could comment on that, I think Nick Saban has truly skewed the the expectations of most fan bases. Yeah, you Uh, think so? (laughs) Yeah, let me me use another word. Totally ruined the expectations. (laughs) Yeah, so like, like... Georgia, like you mentioned, is there almost every other year. They're in the SEC championship every year, national championship not too long ago. To expect them to be there every single year, like Alabama, is almost a little unrealistic. And I think that's where situations like like at Texas are become really toxic, where if, you, if, you, if you're not in the national championship by year three and are there every other year, then you're out. And, you know, there's only one man that's done that before, and it's saving <laughs> That's it. That's what we're all going to choose to measure our programs against. The one exception to the rule. That's a great strategy, I think. It's very healthy for the sport, by the way. My dad actually is a 60-year-old Georgia fan, and he's exactly what you described. So there you go. Me and your dad are in good company, Stuart. More people need to follow us. That's what yeah. needs to happen. <laughs> I'm trying to get there. All right. We're going to go over to Cole. He has a question about reigning P5 conference champions being dethroned. Yeah, Josh, uh, pleasure to be on the show. Um, my question was based on uh, the reigning champs. I'm hesitant to believe that we'll see a new um, champion in the Power Five. Um, but my question is, what has to happen for the teams that are kind of hiding in the shadow to not only win a game this year, but to conquer and emerge as a new champion for years to come? Initially, I think a lot of folks would say something's got to happen to Alabama. I don't go that far, only because Alabama's been beaten. Like they got beaten 2019, they got beaten 2018. So it's not like it's impossible. You, you do have to have your act together. But what really has to happen is someone has to get quarterback figured out. It's no mystery why LSU was able to do what they did in 2019. It's no mystery why it was Clemson of all teams that beat Alabama in 2018. They they had quarterback figured out. So We had a question in like, I don't know when it was, Jordan, like the first or second session we did tonight. Some guy asked if you could take any player from any bygone era for a program and put them on this year's team at that program, like who would it be to change the sport this year? So I thought about A&M. Because A&M's got a really good roster. They they compare very favorably physically. Like when you watch A&M get off a bus, they don't take a back seat to many teams and had quarterback, at least to the degree you need it. What if I took Johnny Menzel and I put him on this year's A&M team? What if they got 
that caliber play, then all of a sudden that's what it would take. So my point is, I don't think we, I don't think Haynes King's going to be that. But then again, very few people during preview magazine season in 2019 were saying, well, here's one thing we know for sure. Joe Burrow is going to be the Heisman Trophy winner this year. Joe Burrow is going to go undefeated and win a national title and totally rewrite the record books at LSU. So is it hard to do? Yeah. But even with the high execution level that it takes, do you always see it coming? No, you don't. So I guess quarterback play is my answer. Follow-up question could be, what team that doesn't fit you know, the, the elite tier one description already, what team or which teams out there could have that? And I guess the answer is, I don't know. Like Haynes Keene could be a guy to watch. Um, Sam Howell at North Carolina, maybe he just becomes a transcendent superstar this year. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about North Carolina pulling a shocker. Maybe JT Daniels lifts Georgia. Like Those would be the ones I would look at. But I mean, I think some people forget Oklahoma hadn't won a title yet under Lincoln Riley. So maybe even though they're in plain sight, maybe they qualify as the answer to that question. Do you think that it would take just one offset year for a team like a Michigan to beat Ohio State and then take over the Big Ten? Or is it have to be consecutive year uh, wins for a team to then be the dominant force in their conference? No, I don't think that I don't think anyone's taking over from Ohio State. No different than LSU didn't take over from Alabama down here. If Texas would have ended up winning, they went to overtime in the Red River last year. If they beat Oklahoma, they wouldn't have taken over the conference because what has to happen is you have to sustain just like they have. Like it's not been a one year deal for Ohio State or Alabama. So it can't just be a one year deal on the other side. What has to happen, like if Michigan were to pull that off this year, let's say by midseason, JJ McCarthy, true freshman there, he ends up starting for Michigan and he outplays whoever ends up starting for Ohio State. And all of a sudden, the entire country sees Michigan have a competent offense and an elite quarterback. Well, it, the same thing could happen there that happened at a place like Clemson. When kids saw Deshaun Watson, some people say Taj Boyd, I say Deshaun Watson, and then all of a sudden Trevor Lawrence saw that and he committed there. And then DJ Uyangalale saw Trevor Lawrence and he committed there. And then you just get this, this chain reaction of elite quarterback play. And once it starts, as you've noticed, it doesn't stop. Like you get Tua Tonga-Vailoa, then you get Bryce Young. You get all the guys that Oklahoma had. And then you get Spencer Rattler, and they've already got Caleb Williams there. So you just got to start one of those quarterback chain reactions. I say that's all you have to do like it's easy. Well, someone's going to do it. So it might as well be like fill in the blank and put your program there. All right. We'll head over to the fifth and final Josh of the night. Josh Miller's got a question <laughs> about bowl systems uh, during the uh, BCS era and the college football playoff era. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me, Josh. Um, I do have a question, and I, I've seen the forbidden three-letter words uh, pop up quite a bit in the last two weeks. So uh, I was very curious on your thoughts about, uh, you know, if you thought that the BCS system and its subjectivity created better bowl matchups and, and championship matchups as opposed to uh, the CFP, which is a, a little bit more, well, I should say a lot more subjective uh, in terms of it's a, it's a lot more like eye and litmus tests, uh, kind of how people feel. Um, and, and, and just more so, which one do you think created has created better matchups thus far, even though, you know, the CFP is relatively short in its existence here? I I got a really weird way to answer this. Um, I love your name, by the way. So I got a really weird way to answer this. <laughs> the functionality, the pure functionality and process of the current playoff selection system, I don't have a problem with. I've never disagreed with the teams they put in the playoff, let's say. So I've never had a problem with that. 
if you're talking about the eras, like the playoff era and all that entails versus the BCS era and all that entailed, I'm telling you right now, unequivocally, the BCS era was giving us a better bowl product, a better bowl season. I don't think that's necessarily the playoffs fault from a structure standpoint or the committee's fault from a selection standpoint. I just think that with the advent of the playoff, a different mentality emerged. And I've talked about this before. I don't want to just like beat it to death, but I think the, the very second that the, the network that exists as the hub of college football in our industry, which is ESPN, the second that they bought that playoff contract, you sealed that fate in a lot of ways. Because that meant a multi-billion dollar marketing machine was going to be put behind the playoff for the first time ever. Something not called the regular season for college football was going to be at the forefront of college football marketing. And then people listened. And so all of a sudden, you had the mentality shift from the regular season is what it's all about with a cherry on top at the end to the playoff is what it's all about. And all this stuff's just a precursor. And that's not the way college football should be structured. It's not, the, it's not healthy for the sport. And so, it, but that's not the system's fault because the bottom line is, had we kept the focus and kept the premium on the regular season, you could have a 14 playoff and still have everyone value things properly. But once you started using phrases like meaningless bowl game, and once you started referring to conference title games as meaningless, if they're not going to have auto bids attached to them, you can't get mad at kids for listening to that. You can't get mad at fans for listening to that. And so when a kid wants to opt out of the Alamo Bowl, I'm not going to get mad at the kid. He's opting out of something he's been told is meaningless by people three or four times for several years in a row. So I'm an era guy. And I miss what we had in the BCS era. I miss the fact that I could turn on the Capital One Bowl and that thing felt huge. And I looked at the passion and, and all of what makes college football great on display and you couldn't differentiate. You couldn't discern what was a BCS game and what was a, a tier two or tier three game. It was just bowl season. And I, I also, I love the aspect that you still had the urgency, obviously, but you also did not have this ideology permeating throughout the college football public that if your team's not in the playoff race, whatever they're doing is meaningless, it, it, which is insane. Because I remember vividly turning on rivalry games of teams that were six and six versus eight and four caliber teams. Everything's being laid on the line. No one cares what bowl game they're about to go to. No one cares that they're in or out of the playoff hunt. All that exists is that 60 minutes of raw game time at that particular stadium on that particular night. And the other thing was, like, there was a lot of pride in winning a conference title. There's a lot of pride in the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, for example, of making it to the Rose Bowl. And if we're part of the playoff, that would be great. Like, if we're part of the, the BCS, that'd be great. But we got our own thing over here that we've agreed to for 100 years being a really huge deal. Let's not interrupt that. Well, then it got interrupted. And so now it's kind of like trying to plug 13 holes in a dam with 10 fingers to try and reverse it. I don't think you reverse it. So. You know, I, I think you got to have some pretty radical concepts if you want to go about rearranging things to get what you used to have, knowing full well you can't, this is a car you can't throw in reverse. Yeah, and I, I'll agree with you on that too, because I remember uh, plenty of championship games uh, and even bowl games throughout, I mean, through 2005, 2006, 2007, uh, that were really memorable and still, you know, stand the test of time. Uh, do you think outside of uh, just language, is there is there a real solution to making uh, kind of college football playoff uh, bowl games feel more than what they have been, at least in terms of uh, meaning. 
what I would do is tie compensation packages to them. Like that's my radical concept. What I would do is basically I would take a big giant metaphorical pair of scissors and I would cut the umbilical cord that, that connects bowl season to the regular season. I can't be paying you $3,500 legally at least to play in a week eight game. But what I would love to see is I would love to see a revenue sharing package developed and agreed to between various bowl games and then the universities that participate in those bowl games. And I'm a big like merit-based guy too. So what I'd like to see is if you get this pool, let's say you go to the Gator Bowl, I would love to see the city of Jacksonville, the advertising partners, the TV partner being ESPN, get a nice compensation pool or a revenue sharing pool together and then cut it 75-25. And so players that participate in the game who haven't opted out, there's your incentive to play, players who are on the active roster and who choose to participate on the winning team, they divide up 75% of that pool and the losing team still gets 25% of it. So you may be walking home with 600 bucks in your pocket or $2,900 in your pocket, but everyone gets paid something. So you have that incentive and there's the incentive to win instead of just participate because you want more money. So if I said that in 1995, that'd be ludicrous, but we wouldn't have this problem to fix in 1995. So that's where I am right now. That's a really good point. Well, thank you, Joshua. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. We'll head over to Jay. He's got a question about Josh Heupel at Tennessee. Do you see a possibility where Coach Heupel and some of the newer coaches and the programs that have the ability to be a contender or a tier one program, but aren't exactly there on the field? Is there a path for them to make the way in that's five, eight years? Five, eight years, yes. Um, two or three years, not so much. I would say the first thing they have to do is they have to unfortunately tear down a lot before they start to build there. And so, like I've I've said with Hypel, Hypel's a guy who qualifies as a year zero guy. Mike Norvell last year was a year zero guy. In other words, they are inheriting a situation uh, that is is so backwards in a lot of ways, they got to tear some stuff down before they start building. I don't have a problem looking at it like that. I don't think, for example, Shane Beamer at South Carolina fits that description. So it's case by case. But what he has to do there is they got to overcome a lot of doubt, but it doesn't really matter what someone in Springfield, Illinois, thinks about you at Tennessee. What matters is internally what people think. So you got to close the gates in some cases culturally and worry about what's on the inside. But then number two, you got to make sure that prospective athletes are getting the right impression of what Tennessee is. That's all well and good. Then you got to ultimately get it done on the field and you, you got to make sure that your program is just not a total and complete disaster on the field or else all that other stuff's irrelevant. And then number four, you got to make sure that you have your corner of the market really locked down when it comes to NIL and marketing. So you got to stay ahead of the curve instead of adjusting constantly and being on defense constantly. If they do all those things and Josh Heupel, let's say is a, it turns out a better hire or maybe a perfect culture fit for Tennessee, like Sam Pittman has been for Arkansas, well, then all of a sudden, maybe it seems like you're ahead of schedule year two and year three, because there are not nationally, at least very high expectations for what Hypo is going to do at Tennessee. That doesn't matter necessarily, because many guys have been overlooked throughout the history of this game and overachieved. Many guys have been propped up. I'm thinking about Tom Herman at Texas and falling flat. So expectation doesn't matter. Delivery matters. And that's that's what I would look for year zero, one, two in, in Knoxville. 
All right. Next up is Michael. He actually has a question about Nick Saban's replacement at Alabama. Hey, Josh. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, so I was just wondering, you know, Nick Saban's been with Alabama for quite a while, and eventually his time's going to run out, maybe three years, maybe five, maybe longer, hopefully longer, being an Alabama fan. Uh, but my question is, who do you think is the most likely candidate as a replacement for Nick Saban, both at today's time, if you were to retire today, and maybe three to five years from now, who would be the most likely candidate to replace him? Today, I have no clue. Today, I quite literally have no idea what the answer is. And I think the answer, if it's five years from now, is a guy we don't really know about right now. Um, only to say, I think the names that will be at the forefront in five years are not the names that are at the forefront right now. Because it's not going to be Ryan Day or, or Lincoln Riley. I don't think it's going to be Dabo. Maybe some people disagree with me on that. I don't think it's going to be him. So the alternative is maybe it's a guy who's an offensive coordinator right now who's about to be a head coach somewhere. And then by that point, he's two or three years in. And then Bama goes and gets hopefully the guy that they think will be there for the next 20 years. But if he were to announce tomorrow, I'm stepping down, I'll open it up. Anyone can answer this. Who that's attainable, and Bama can get a lot of people, maybe like 95% of their candidates, who would they go get? You also got to convince someone to take the spot after Saban. So who in the world would they go get? I have no clue what the answer is. Matt Campbell's spot is uh, Venables. Brent, so you're, so you're going to go defense after you just got a taste of elite offense. You're going defense. Is that what you're doing? <laughs> I, I think that he's a, he's a, he's an elite coach who could maybe make a splash and, and, and still convince recruits to come to Alabama, uh, even offensively. I think he'd have to go get an offensive minded, uh, like superstar to kind of compliment him. But I think he'd be a good pick in terms of, uh, just pure star power. Well, the first thing you'd have to do, because there's this new SEC bylaw where you have to hire Kevin Steele for a few weeks. So they first have to hire Kevin Steele. Then they'd fire him and give him like 800 grand. And so then who would we move to? Because like I, if it were to happen right now, I got a hard time seeing them go defense. Like I think they would want to go offensive mind. That's sometimes that's overrated. Like go get the best guy, like you said. But I don't, like someone said, Matt Campbell. I don't know that Matt, I've always been told he doesn't want to come to the South. I've always been told he's more a Midwest guy. And so what if he tells you, I know this is crazy. What if the Iowa State head coach tells Alabama no? Well, then where you go? What about uh, Lincoln Riley, possibly? I don't think he's leaving Oklahoma. Oklahoma. I really don't think he'd leave Oklahoma for Alabama. I think he would look at that situation and say, I've got everything I need here. I don't need to add on to that list the shadow of the greatest to ever do it. He'd probably find someone like Ryan Day that no one would expect. Kind of comes out of the dark. Because I agree. I agree that's the path. Who is that? Do you think Mario Cristobal could take the job if he continues on the path he's on in Oregon? He would crawl over broken glass if they offered the job to him. He would crawl over broken glass to get it. I think Cristobal would be on the short list. I think he would be a guy who obviously from, from a marketing standpoint, familiarity standpoint, recruiting standpoint, he would check all the boxes. He would have to make a superstar offensive coordinator hire, which they would give him all the resources to do. And he would not be a guy, I don't think, who would shy away from the shadow. So that – like we got one name so far on our very short list that I think is viable. Yeah, I think he'd be one of them. You think uh, Matt Rule would, would come from the NFL or maybe Tony Elliott from Clemson? Elliott, yeah, would do that. Uh, I don't think Matt Rule would. Dan, Sark. Follow, follow up. See, Sark's an interesting name because Sark, I think, if this question were to be asked this time last year, maybe Sark is the answer. 
maybe he still is because uh, I mean Sark's not exactly a guy when you cut him open who bleeds burn orange. He just he's got the Texas job, but I don't know if you can really justify that there because there's Texas is going to look at you and say we're not going to they're not going to give you anything there that we can't give you here resource wise and maybe they're right about that. Certainly they're right in terms of compensation. So I don't know that I would call him viable at the moment. It, you always think you can go get whoever you want to, but you can't get whoever you want to. You can get most of who you want to, but not, not whomst ever you want to. <laughs> yeah. Another but, thing you mentioned too, another thing you mentioned too, is that the fact that they're going to have to be replacing Nick Saban, you know, the greatest coach of all time. Like who wants to step into that kind of position with that kind of pressure on you? It, only to like, there's no way you can succeed in the expectations. I mean, it's almost like a bust no matter what, because you're following Nick Saban. There's a breed of competitor that does not think that way. They are few and far between. Uh, Nick Saban's one of them. And we're, we're talking about him by default. So he can't be the answer. Maybe he can, maybe he just retires and unretires, but the right (laughs) mentality is not turned off by that. Having said that, I think there are a lot of elite coaches out there that do think that way and would be would be scared off by that. So I think you'd have to get them in the interview room and look them in the eye and ask them, is this going to be a problem for you? Because we're not we're not shying away from expectation here. We expect to be the best in the country. That's where we expect to be. And we're going to give you every possible reason to not have an excuse not to do that double negative. So hopefully Greg Byrne would know how to word that better than me. But I yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of validity to that. But I also think there there is a guy or two or five out there who would say, I don't care because uh, I think of myself as being capable of everything that guy was, Nick Saban was. Whether I'm right or not, I think that about myself. By default, you have to have that as the foundation for a negotiation or else you've got the wrong guy in the room. Do you think they could go the – Carolina basketball route and maybe hire an assistant who's been there a couple of years besides Saban? At this moment, I don't know who it would be. I mean, my answer is yes in the past. I don't know who it would be right now. It would be, you know, they've got Pete Golding. Pete Golding's nowhere near ready to be a head coach at a major program. Uh, they've got, you know, Bill O'Brien has been a head coach in the NFL, but Bill, Bill O'Brien I mean, at the college level, you know, he was at Penn State and he was good enough there to be hired in the NFL. I don't know that he would be. I don't know, man. Table Bill O'Brien. Well, let's see what he does this year. But that could be the answer in like six months. You think there's any possibility that they'd go uh, to like a powerhouse from the FCS? Yeah, I do. Or or the G5 level. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that could be a possibility. All right. Up next is Schaefer. He wants you to evaluate and rank uh, Power Five conferences. Yeah, hey Josh, uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, this is a debate I see a lot. Obviously, very subjective. Um, lots of people always talk about, um, or we, you know, on the show talk about all the time. You know, those top tier programs, Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama. In terms of like conferences today, I'm just kind of curious how you kind of view each one in terms of its, of its competitive nature, and then well as kind of historically um so i'm going to speak sort of in a forward-facing manner so i'm including what i feel about 2021 in this so i think sec is number one i would put the big 10 number two i would put the acc number three and the big 12 number four understanding those are percentage points different 
and I would either put the AAC five and then the Pac-12 six, or I would put the Pac-12 five and the AAC six. You can make a solid argument that the AAC is one of the five best conferences in America right now. Historically, it's a little bit different. Like historically, I still go SEC Big Ten. It gets really muddy after that for me because you got to you got to remember we have changed these conferences very recently. In the last ten years, there's been a lot of realignment. So that's a little bit tougher one to answer. But like, so, like Nebraska going to the Big Ten or A and M going to the SEC. Yeah. So yeah, get back to the first one though because I want to hear the room on this. So. I think we're all, are we all of the agreement the SEC is the best football conference in America right now? Yes. Okay, everyone's not. 100%. Okay. So how many people, raise your hand if you have someone other than the Big Ten in your number two spot. Okay, so that's a consensus one too, and I think 95% of folks would agree. Now just say out loud on the count of three who your number three is. One, two, three. ACC. So that was alphabet soup. So who said ACC? Why would you put them ahead of? Because I did too. So why would you put them ahead of the Big Twelve? Clemson's just so good, and so is Oklahoma. Okay, so so I'm going to play devil's advocate. So so is Oklahoma. So now let's get past the top. We go to tier two. How are you seeing the eight? Keep in mind, I'm agreeing with you, but I'm playing devil's advocate. How are you seeing the second tier matchup with the second tier of the Big Twelve? I got it. It's because FSU is coming back, baby. (laughs) <laughs> hey, I, listen, you say it and then you laugh. First off, be more convicted. Secondly, you could also say that about Miami. You could say it about Virginia. There's a lot of promise, in other words, in tier two, hold the water jug as I answer, in tier two <laughs> of the ACC, whereas in tier two of the Big 12, we have my Iowa State Cyclones and fill in the blank. Is it Oklahoma State? Is it Texas? Is it TCU? I don't know. I would feel very confident in doing a a seed-by-seed matchup, like a tournament, in other words. If I got down to the sixth-best team in the AAC or ACC versus the sixth-best team in the Big 12, I'd feel good about my chances. That would be my rationale. Now, who in this room said Pac-12 or Big 12 in their number three spot? I had Big 12 12. in my number three. Okay, I'm just going to let someone choose because I got to – So so go ahead. You have a higher-quality coach, I think, in the Big 12 than you do the ACC. I mean, I, you can just run through the name top to bottom. And I think the from top to bottom, the average level of coach is higher. I could agree with this, but all right. So then do you argue that the products being put on the field are also operating at a higher level? Because coaches can't take the field. No, I wouldn't. But I would say that uh, the product that you're sending into professional football is higher than what you're seeing out of the ACC. But I would still go back to that's great. But if anything, that's an indictment on the conference because if I'm sending more pro talent to the league, shouldn't they be performing at a higher level collectively when they're in college, which is all we're talking about right now? Yeah, that's fair. One thing I was going to pitch in, uh, I know we just had this discussion about bowl games, maybe not mean as much as they used to, but um, with the Big 12 doing so well in bowl season last year, going 5-0 and and the ACC going 0-6. I know not necessarily the best indicator, but it's just one of them. Schaefer, I have strong feelings about, about bowl records. I have very strong feelings about it. I mean, here's what I'm going to do. So I'm going to pin Jay's video right quick because that blue is really calming me right now. And so I'm looking at that blue light and I'm calm. Let me just say it like this, like I'm medicated. I do not value conference bowl records for anything. Period. End of point. I'm going to tell you why. If they seeded them, if we could seed bowl season to where 
if you're a three seed, you play someone else's three seed. I love that. But I cannot tell you how badly my neck just twitches when I see a, a conference's number two beat another conference's number six. And then that conference's number two starts to beat the chest as if to say that proves conference superiority. No, it doesn't. It proves that your second best is better than my sixth best. Your second best took the field as a field goal favorite, which in and of itself is pathetic, against my sixth best team, and you, you won. That's wonderful. That doesn't indicate anything to me. And here's the other price you pay in bowl season, in any given bowl season. If you're a conference that's stronger, by default, you're probably going to have one or two, maybe teams in the playoff. And therefore, every subsequent, it's like a little snake. Every team that you get in the playoff, it pulls the third and fourth and fifth and sixth rungs on that ladder of that little snake, it pulls them up. And so if let's say we're the SEC, Kentucky, whereas they normally would have been down at bowl number eight, well, then they get tugged up to bowl number six. So they play a higher yeah. quality opponent and they are less likely to beat that high quality opponent. But the only reason they're playing a higher quality opponent is because their conference is so good. They got teams playing in the playoff and the New Year's six rotational games. So it's aggravated me for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, honestly, to, I mean, honestly, to your point, I think ACC last year was only favored in one, one or two of their six. That's a good sp- – listen, I cannot vouch off the top of my head for that being true because I haven't yeah. resourced it. I'm going to trust you. And if so, that's a, that's a pretty good step. <laughs> All right. Next up is Daniel. He has a question about college football superiority over the NFL. So thanks for having us here tonight, Josh. Um, my question is, in your opinion, what makes college football better than the NFL? And how can the college football community, from fans to the head honchos, preserve its greatness for the foreseeable future in light of all the impending change that surrounds the sport? Yeah, so the first thing I would do is I would stop using the NFL as a comparative data point for college football. We hear that all the time. This fill-in-the-blank is wrong with college football. Here's what the NFL does. I, that's a Sunday product. That's a pro product. I watch the NFL. I, at the same time, love the college product and do not, do not compare them as if they're apples to apples. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I would understand and try and enshrine the regular season as being the main event of college football while still valuing the playoff, but understanding how to maintain that perspective and appreciating the tradition and the the lack of safety net that makes every week an urgent must-see appointment television event in college football the way it is not in the NFL. Uh, The third thing is I would understand uniqueness and I would understand that there are things about Eugene, Oregon that are way different than Tallahassee, Florida, and that's okay. It's okay to have that culture. It's okay to have that uniqueness. That's There's so many, it's like a Baskin Robbins, but it's football. There's so many different flavors in college football, whereas the NFL, it's a lot more monolithic. You think about the NFL, it's just the NFL. You think about college football, there are teams in this sport that play on blue fields and red fields. It's just different. It should be different and it should be celebrated. And then the fourth thing is I would try and remember that there is not a one size fits all here. And there's also not the need to punish you for your success in the NFL, the better you do, the lower you draft. And that's meant to inject parity into the sport. If that appeals to you, that is wonderful. And the Sunday product is going to be on TV every week for you. You can also have another world that exists where the better you do, the more doors open up. 
and the more number one recruits want to come to your school and the more boosters want to invest in your program. I've always, that's appealed to me. I've always liked that about college. So, and that's aside from just the whole tradition and pageantry and the, the fact that it is a, I think it's a brand driven sport, maybe more than a star driven sport or a player driven sport, even though superstar players still transcend that. But, you know, like you, you may watch Clemson last year for Trevor Lawrence, but by and large, if you watch Clemson, you picture the tiger paw in your, in your head instead of an individual player, which is good because that tiger paw is around for a hundred years and the player is only around for four years. So those are the reasons that I would give. All right. Well, that was everybody um, except for me, Josh, I want to know what is your favorite pro wrestling rivalry of all time? Well, the answer here is The Rock and Steve Austin. They main evented three WrestleManias. And if you throw 19 at me and say they didn't go on last, I'm just going to come back at you and say it's because he was in the hospital the night before. So we all know they made him into three of them. That was the very peak of my fandom. I tuned out shortly thereafter. I am a firm believer that if the main event at WrestleMania 17 in Houston is handled differently, then I'm still tuned in. But that's 20 years ago now, literally 20 years ago. So I'm not going to uh, focus on sour grapes too much. But I'm going Rock and Steve Austin, man. Josh, how do, how do we get you on the playoff committee? That's a great question, Cohen. When you figure that out, why don't you let me know? Just let me know. Because I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, and I don't want to sound arrogant, but I'm smarter than everyone in that room. <laughs> Again, not to sound arrogant. Far be it for me to sound arrogant. And I'm definitely not putting this in the show. But I want to be on the playoff committee. I want to be there because I would not be one of those dudes who looked terrible in the photo op sitting in the uh, the ballroom at the hotel, I would be off on my own and I would have four screens in front of me and I would be dialed in. I'd have a headset on, not plugged in anything, but it's for optics. I would be dialed in. Well, we need someone with your kind of passion on there anyway. Like someone who's passionate about the sport and who knows the sport. Yeah, and knows at the very least perspective. <laughs> it's got to be one of these P's. Yeah, there's definitely been a decline in, in sports journalism, in my opinion, over the past couple of years, decade, however long you want to put it. Let's see my contract here. Uh, nope. I can't talk about oh, that. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunate though it may be, but I do appreciate it. Hey, look, we got, we got a ton of stuff that we're about to do with, with this show, with this brand that is only able to exist because a lot of people think what you just thought and, and articulated that a lot of sports media and college football media has left them. I felt that way. That's why I started doing this a few years back. I felt that way. I looked around and said, where did all the good stuff go? Oh, it's gone. Let me try and make some. So a lot of people feel that way, which is open the door for us to do this. CBS sees it. They see the numbers and what they're doing every week. So it's a bad thing, but yet for us selfishly, I guess it's a really good thing. Yeah. We love having your show, man. I mean, it gets me through all my lawn mowing sessions, all my <laughs> dinners that I cook, you know, everything. I honestly, that's when I, I listen to your show every, every night when I'm cooking dinner. And when I'm on my grass, I love it. It's college football show. I appreciate it, man. I, I appreciate it. I drive to work. I am always fascinated to hear about where people listen because I get a lot of lawnmowers, whole lot of driving. I get some, and it makes me uncomfortable, but I roll with it. People say, I go to bed with you. And they won't <laughs> say listening to you. They just say with you. And it's like, <laughs> I, I think back to last night and I was alone as could be. But if you say so, man. And so, Irregardless, which is, I'm told a word now, wherever you listen, really appreciate you and really appreciate everyone doing this tonight because it was really fun.
Fun stuff. I appreciate everyone tuning in. I appreciate those who participated. Remember, when we get to the next thousand on Instagram, we're going to do this again at Late Kick Josh. Make sure you're following me there. Again, load of fun. Love this format more than anything we do. It's just conversation, as you can see. And there are no constraints. There are no commercial breaks, no anything like that. So really had fun. Thank you so much for watching. Again, like the channel if you're on YouTube. Subscribe to the podcast if you're listening there. Thanks so much. Have a great day and God bless. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation.